0: Welcome to the Waiting Room Revolution. On today's show, we chat with Dr. Faith Banks, a certified hospice and palliative care veterinarian and an old friend of Sammy's. We chat about what she does in home visits with her animal clients, how she measures their quality of life, and the many parallels between providing palliative care for humans and for animals. Hi, I'm Xian Xiao.
1: And I'm Sammy Winemaker. We talk to people who have information and tips on how to unlock a better
0: illness experience. The waiting room revolution starts right now. Welcome to the podcast, Faith.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Oh, Faith, it's so good to see you. <laughs> and you know, the interesting thing is that I think when I, when Faith ended up being a vet and focusing on palliative care. And I, of course, went into palliative care. Over the last, I don't know, 15 years, we have at times said, oh, we we have to share notes. We've yeah. got to talk about the parallels of what we do. <laughs> it's very amazing to
2: see you.
0: Clearly, you both have a lot to chat about. I want to start off by first asking you, Faith, Could you share with us a bit about what it means to be a hospice and palliative care veterinarian?
2: So I am a mobile vet. Um, So I've been a vet for about 25, 26 years already. And I started off in regular practice, sort of what you think veterinarians do in general practice. Um, And then about 10 years ago, I decided to shift um, my focus and I started a mobile service. So I go to people's homes, just like you do, Sammy. And we focus on geriatrics and patients who are at the end of their life. And a very large part of what I do and what the other veterinarians in my service do is we perform in-home euthanasia. Um, I was really the, the first in Toronto that started a mobile service that just focused on the end of life service. So we don't do, you know, vaccines. And if you call us because your dog has diarrhea, we're not coming to help for that. We're really there to help guide families um, through the, the end of life um, with their pet. And now my service, um, we have nine veterinarians, um, all within the GTA. And um, again, our our focus is just on sort of geriatrics and in home euthanasia.
0: So how did you get into that? How did you specialize in this?
2: It it really, I think my interest started when um, my previous Bernese Mountain Dog was aging. And, you know, she had all these different issues that sort of, I used to think, you know, if, if, if that was just her only issue, it would be fine, but it was just issue upon issue that you would see probably, you know, very similarly with, um, elderly patients. Um, she had a lot of issues. She was anxious. She was, well, defecating in the house. Um, she was having mobility issues. Um, she was not sleeping at night. Like all these things were sort of happening to her. And I, I remember thinking like, I don't really see a lot of dogs like this coming into the practice, but I know she's not the only one. There have to be others out there. Um, And I just became more and more interested in geriatric care and pain management. And so the more I learned, the more I realized that this was an area where you know, I felt that the the pets were being underserved because people were very nervous or hesitant about taking their pets, or it was too difficult to bring your hundred pound Labrador retriever into the vet clinic. Um, And so they were sort of suffering at home. And so I decided I wanted to provide this kind of service. Um, And, you know, in veterinary medicine, um, euthanasia is a big part of the way we say goodbye to our pets. And so it, sort of naturally fell in with what we did. And, you know, I was very comfortable having these conversations, these really difficult conversations with families. And I the more I researched and the more I learned and the more I just became so fascinated and interested in it, I decided I'm going to do this. So that's how it started. It's incredible. Faith, I
1: have a million questions for you. (laughs) Or just like two million things to compare and talk about. Um, So In the human world, it's not always obvious to people, regardless of what their illness is, when they have entered into the advanced stage of an Mm -hmm. illness Mm -hmm. or potentially in the last months of their life. In fact, it can often come as a surprise to them and feel more like a sudden death, a sudden decline, when really, What we are trying to help people understand is that if you step back and look from 10,000 feet above, that you can often see things coming. Mm -hmm. How similar is that to a pet entering into the final chapters of life? Do pets also have a palpable decline that people just don't necessarily pick up on, but that you
2: know is quite normal? Absolutely. Love is blind. And I think, you know, often we have these denial goggles on when we are sort of facing the end or nearing the end with our pets. Um, And often people will say, you know, I I was looking at some photos or some videos of, you know, their dog just a couple of weeks ago. And they're like, wow, like he was plump, he was running in the park. And now, like, I see such a change. Um, But when you live with them, Which is perhaps different with, you know, families who have elderly parents, for example, that they don't live with. When you live with the pet, you don't necessarily see the gradual decline. And so I often say that when, you know, friends or family come to your house, which is not happening as often because of COVID, Um, when they come on these specific time periods, you see them at these different points in time and you probably see a bigger difference, but when you live with the pet day in and day out, you know, the steady decline is not as visible, but yes, I think if you, um, you would see that, um, there is that decline. And so, um, yeah, I think it's very similar. Yeah.
1: Um, in the human world, clinicians are very uncomfortable sharing that with people who are facing a progressive illness Mm -hmm. or just natural decline from being frail and elderly. They worry that if they give people a heads up that you will begin to have this normal decline uh, because of course dying is a part of living that they will cause helplessness, hopelessness, et cetera, et cetera. I do wonder sometimes if in the pet world, even though we all know when we when we buy a, a pet, a dog or whatever kind of pet, we know that life is much shorter than human life. Um, and maybe it's not as relevant actually in the um, veterinary world, but we're, we're pretty awful at acknowledging that dying is a part of living when you're a human being and mm-hmm. i'm wondering is that is there the same denial in the pet world
2: i'm nodding my head like crazy because the answer is absolutely yes um you know i i recently was at um the home of a, a dog and we were i was there for euthanasia and the dog was set over 17 years old mm-hmm. and the woman, the owner was saying to me, I, I can't believe it. Like, I just, I can't believe this is happening. And, you know, on one hand, I I, I was sort of thinking to myself, your dog is 17. Like dogs aren't, they don't usually live to 17. Um, and so for her to be in such denial um, about the fact that it was happening was, was so shocking to me because how could you not think and you know I don't mean this in a in a heartless way but how do you not think that a 17 year old pet is kind of potentially getting near the end and when it does happen you know it it makes sense because the dog is 17.
1: And it's not wrong it's sad but it's wrong that a 17 year old dog would die right so I get all hot under the collar about you know doctors who um, don't prepare people for what we know is this normal stage of whatever illness they have or life. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that the grieving of the families that lose a pet would be softer or they would be able to begin grieving in those final weeks or months before they feel it's a sudden death? If their veterinarians helped normalize at various intervals along their interaction with the family in whatever way you would see appropriate that there will come a time when your pet enters into an advanced stage of life and Mm -hmm. this is what it's going to look
2: like and is there any of that preparatory discussion that happens These are really hard discussions, as you know, um, you know, they're, they're probably so difficult in human medicine and they're equally as difficult in, in many ways in veterinary medicine. Um, you know, I have, clients that refer to their pets as their children. And yeah. I have clients who tell me they love their pet more than they love their children. And so these relationships, these Is bonds the, or their <laughs> husband yeah, or their yeah. husband, um, these relationships are so strong. And so, you know, I do think that the grieving begins anticipatory grief begins the moment you find out your dog has cancer. Um, but you know, when you're then sent home and say oh you'll know when it's time which means time to euthanize um and that's about all that you get as far as guidance Mm -hmm. um and information i mean i think you know sometimes the the vets that are doing that are doing a tremendous disservice to their families and um you know i wish vets were so and and human doctors i guess the same you know i wish people were more comfortable talking about um, illness and the stages and the illness trajectory and just what to expect. Um, you know, I, I know you feel this way. Knowledge is power and I believe it too. Um, and so if we can prepare people and, and help them know what to look out for, um, then they're, they're much better prepared for the end. And it makes a huge difference in their grieving process after they lose their pet. I can,
1: I feel honestly, like I'm speaking, like I'm hearing
2: yourself. Yeah.
1: No <laughs> <laughs> It's crazy how many parallels, like I can't even believe it.
0: Can I jump in with a quick question? Because you guys are talking about grief of the owners when they lose their pets, but do pets Mm. experience grief when they, when someone in the family, you know, passes away from an illness? What does that look like?
2: Yeah, well, you know what, I just on our our Facebook page, I just wrote a a little article about this and have the most beautiful picture of a uh, golden doodle lying with um, his little doggy sister Ruby. And, and you can see the bigger dog on the bottom, the smaller dog sort of snuggled up and that was how they were, when I went to to, um, when they went to say goodbye to um, the older dog. And, and so I wrote, uh, you know a little article, a post about grieving in pets. Um, and one of the things I talked about was the, the wonderful part about in-home euthanasia is the other pets are able to be present. And so when you remove a pet to go to a vet clinic for euthanasia, for example, um, and the pet never comes back, the one at home is sort of wondering, you know, where's, where's fluffy? Um, and so by being present, Um, they, they, I do believe they understand, and I believe there is closure, but, you know, getting to, to what you asked, do the other pets grieve? Absolutely. Um, you know, they, they're buddies and they become reliant on each other and they, you know, some pets will groom each other. Some pets sleep together. Like they kind of go everywhere together. Um, and so they, they notice when that pet is missing.
0: Well, that's interesting. What about when an owner of a pet dies? So do animals grieve their human companions? Yes, yeah, um,
2: that too. So, um, you know, we we do hear that, um, that certainly, I mean, you know, if you have one of the, the owners, that is the one that feeds the pet, takes them out to the bathroom, goes for walks, sleeps with them, I mean, does all those things, and then they pass, um, the pet will be lost for sure. You know, I, when I'm thinking about how important pets are
1: to the human experience of illness and dying. Um, it, it shouldn't be understated, because, as you know, faith, I go into people's homes and I get to see their real life. And that includes everything in their home, including their pets. right And you know, I have come into homes where a pet is often snuggled up to the person who's in the hospital bed. Right. And um I'll be told, you know, to to use your name Fluffy. <laughs> Fluffy or Ruby, um yeah. it won't leave so and so side mm-hmm. ever since they came home from the hospital like cu- curled up on the bed. And you have to make nice with Fluffy as the dog <laughs> because Fluffy's going to eat you if right. you try to go near their master. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) And so I find pets can be very territorial around an ill person, very glued to an ill person. And I've had many people say to me, you know, it's interesting. uh, Ruby is now taken over the chair where their person used to sit and is now gone and passed away. So there's so many, there's so much of a connection between pets and their instincts and what we assume they don't pick up on, but they must.
2: Yeah, I, I, I think they they know and understand probably a lot more than we think.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, they're
2: very in tune with the, the emotions mm-hmm. and the feelings of the owners. I mean, I, I can think of so many times, you know, when my kids were younger and they were upset about something like the dogs were glued to them. Like they just knew what was needed. And so I I believe a hundred percent that, you know, if, if there's an ill patient at home, that that pet is going to stick by them.
1: Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's interesting because when you started your practice, which was before I did, um, and before euthanasia, which we call medical assistance in Mm -hmm. dying in the human world, um, was legalized. So, you know, I used to for the first I don't know, decade of my practice, uh, when medical assistance and dying was not legalized. I was asked for it every week of my practice. Mm-hmm. And and often the reference was, or the, the comparison people would say is, you wouldn't do this to your dog. You would, we treat pets better yeah. than we do humans. I've heard that so many times.
0: You know, it's a very common phrase. And it goes to the heart of walking two roads, one of our keys, trying to imagine what a euthanized death versus a natural death is for your pet. And I think it's hard for people to compare because ordinary dying is not something we talk about for humans, let alone for pets.
1: Can pets be cared for while they die naturally in a very proactive way? So for example, if you are called into a home and there is an ailing pet is it possible to choose one of two roads one where you might go down the euthanasia road but the other road being a natural death without euthanasia and I'm really curious if that option is offered to people and what that other road
2: looks like and I could be wrong but I'm just relating to the the human world so um, it is an option, um, and you know I have to say that um, this summer in July, um, my 14-year-old Chihuahua passed um, pretty suddenly. Um, you know, at 11 o'clock at night, I let her out to go to the bathroom. She ran up the stairs, ran into my son's room. All was well. Um, she did have heart issues, totally managed. Um, and you know, if you ask me what her quality of life was at 11 o'clock at night. It would have been a, you know, 95%. She was great. Um, A couple hours later in the middle of the night, she went into respiratory distress and she labored for an hour and then she passed. I was out of my cottage. I didn't have my medical bag. It was a natural death. Um, So I got to see firsthand, you know, and I've seen it before, Um, but it it was, you know, very much up and close and personal um, watching it. And, you know, I've said to my team, I wish I had my medical bag Mm -hmm. because watching what happened to her was, was very upsetting for me and it was distressing for her. Um, You know, I, I guess, you know, maybe part of the difference is that I couldn't explain what was happening to her. Now, if she was a person, I don't know how aware and how, you know, how much she would have understood what was happening, Mm -hmm. but I, I would have preferred to euthanize her at that time. And I and I would have. Um, so back to your question, if if not, you know, if, if euthanasia wasn't the, one of the tools in our toolkit, um, or even if it is one of the tools, you know, how do people feel about natural death in their pets and how do we feel about natural death? And so, it's a long answer, but you know, on one hand, I feel like natural, and I'm putting it in quotation marks, like natural death is not, totally natural death for our pets because we've, you know, in these cats, for example, with kid chronic kidney disease, Mm -hmm. we've been giving them fluids. You know, they've been in the hospital for a couple of days, getting IV fluids, then the owners Mm -hmm. take them home and they continue to give them fluids under the skin. And we're giving them medications and we're force feeding, you know, food into them. And so we're kind of prolonging the Mm -hmm. illness. And so the, the true time where natural death would have probably happened already, we've gone past that. So I don't totally call that natural death. Mm. And I, I guess I, I feel that if we have euthanasia and we have natural death and euthanasia can be um, more controlled, you know, the people that want to be present can be present Um, You can say your goodbyes when you want to. Um, We can ensure a peaceful, stress-free, calm passing for the pet in a timely manner um, versus sort of a more drawn out passing that that might not be painful for the, the person or just stressing for the person because, again, maybe they're not aware. I don't know but it certainly is for the people watching. And so, you know, I think about both those things. I think about what it's like for the the pet, and I think about what it's like for their owners that have to sit and watch what is happening. Um, So, you know, natural death is an option. If people want that, it is an option, and we talk to them about it, but I make sure that we discuss what the underlying disease is that is going to be the reason they're going to die, and therefore what types of, you know, signs or symptoms they're gonna see. and I, uh, most people like, maybe not for some religious reasons occasionally, but I would say most people, um, choose euthanasia.
1: Okay. So if they choose a natural death, which I'm hearing you completely, and you anticipate how that's going to unfold based on the underlying illness. Mm-hmm do you also offer palliation of symptoms? So for example, as far as you can assess on a pet, like whether they have pain or breathlessness or nausea mm-hmm. or confusion and
2: agitation, whatever it is, you can you would still palliate symptoms. Absolutely. And, um, you know, we call it a comfort kit. Um, I don't, I think it might be the same in people, but, you know, we talk about, um, you know, certain drugs that we are dispensing, um, knowing that death is happening. And so these are the drugs that you would use. Um, you know, we, we want the the owners to call us first, let us know, like they're pulling out these heavy duty drugs. Um, mm-hmm. but, um, yeah, we, we would provide those drugs to them at that time.
1: And then you also mentioned religion. And I wrote that down as one of my questions. So in the human I'm bombarding you, are you? Okay no,
2: I love it. Okay.
1: <laughs> like. Okay. Okay. In the human experience, uh, we have many people who wouldn't consider medically assisted death because of religious reasons. And so I was wondering if that still held true for people who may be religious, but then are looking at a pet
2: and euthanasia. My, my issue with that is, you know, if, if for example, if I had a migraine and my husband doesn't like taking medications for some reason. Why should I suffer with a migraine just because he doesn't like taking pills for some reason? And so, you know, for people who sort of don't like giving pills to their pets or don't like, you know, making these decisions. I I, I encourage them to understand that, you know, their pet shouldn't suffer just because of some of their beliefs.
1: But do you have some people who say my religion and my values are the same as my pets. And so I do not believe in, um, in causing death. That's murder in my religion. And so I cannot murder my pet. Do you have any of those?
2: Yes, we have had people like that, for sure. They they do not believe in euthanasia, period. And so, you know, I I don't think that my, I, I don't want my, I don't want my job to be convincing them to humanize their pets. And so I feel my job in those situations is to really let them understand how their pet is feeling, what changes they're going to go through and what we need to do about it in order to, to, you know, keep them feeling comfortable.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So you make sure that they have true informed consent, that if that's the way they want to go, you're not there to change their mind, but they need to be completely informed of the pros and cons.
2: Yeah. yeah. Okay. Wow. One of the, one of the things we see in veterinary medicine is if someone, for example, has a dog with osteosarcoma, um, and they had a previous dog that had osteosarcoma, you know, you tend to get the same breeds. Like I'm a Bernese mountain dog person. We're on our third Bernese mountain dog. We have two at the moment, but, um, you know, someone who had a dog with osteosarcoma, for example, and if they went through amputation and, and they went through chemotherapy and they kind of, you know, did the, the treatment for it. When their second dog gets osteosarcoma they don't want to put that dog through it again mm-hmm. and so they they think about it differently um that they they don't want to go down that same route that they went down before okay tell it
0: yeah Okay, oh, i was gonna follow up with that because that's such an that was one of the questions i have how do you know if you're doing more harm than good by keeping your pet alive
2: well um that's a very good question um so one of the things that we talk about with our families our clients is a quality of life assessment and so I have put together a quality of life scale I know there is no such thing as a perfect you know quality of life scale but um I've been using this one um with slight variations of it for about 10 years now since I started the practice and recently put it online so anybody can access it and it's something that we you know when we do consultations we go through it with the the families or I encourage people to go online and do it and you you fill it out and I like when they do it with other family members and you know get different opinions come up with a number which is a percentage And, you know, that's a starting point. And then you, I tell them, put it away in your kitchen drawer. And then in a couple of weeks, if things seem to change, pull it out again, or, you know, go back online, do it again and see where you are. And so again, it's those snapshots in time that kind of give you a sense of where you are right now. It's not a perfect scale, but it's a very, very, very helpful scale. I I even used it on my previous Bernese Mountain Dog, Um, you know, the the night before I euthanized her, she had gone, she was sort of a 72 for quite some time, and then she dropped to about a 58, and the night before I euthanized her, she was 44%. So it was a, a helpful tool for me. Um, we have,
1: uh, scales in palliative care. We track, we have quality of life scales and we also have, um, distress scales and things like that. But, um, one of the things we often use is a functional scale, uh, where hundred percent is the person's fully functional and independent and zero is dead. And so it is one of the ways that we track where a person's at in their illness journey, mm-hmm. um, quantitatively, I guess, but it's mostly subjective. Um, but I can imagine that a quality of life scale is very helpful because it can help, uh, families, um, look at numbers, which seems to them, even though it is subjective in nature, it feels more objective. And so that when they need to make the decision for euthanasia, um, that, it's not them, it's the numbers. Right. And so it can it can absolve them from feeling guilt that they gave up or something like that.
2: Yeah, I mean the one of the interesting things about the scale that I put together is that you know everything is about the pet. Um, so there's fourteen different categories, you know, anxiety, mobility, appetite, energy level, happiness, things like that. And there's one section which is the burden on you, emotionally, physically, financially. Mm-hmm. People hate that question. Like they don't want it to be about them. They really don't like that question. And so, you know, I've tried to make it more about the pet than about the owner dealing with yeah. the pet. And but, you know the 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 caregiver should have a say in all of this because, the the burden can be huge and so and so um yeah so that's just the one section in the quality of life scale that directly relates to the owners or caregivers
1: you have no idea how much the issue of burden comes up in our discussions as well and caregiver um burden so often the patient is so worried about the effects of their illness and the burden on their loved ones and vice versa we have loved ones who feel very um uh worried and guilty for discussing the hardships of being a caregiver
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: because you're supposed to come to this role as an angel and you know it's not about me it's about my loved one and so this whole idea of the conspiracy around burden, <laughs> it, it, it often does pepper you know, um, the decisions that are being made, but it's not often discussed openly because there's so much stigma um, around it. Um, I, I usually I usually try to normalize burden to a certain extent and say that although, there is a degree of burden involved with this scenario Mm -hmm. um you know a person has to decide for themselves you know what the benefits are and whether they outweigh the burden so are there still enough benefits that you feel that this is um a worthwhile endeavor or, um, there's meaning involved even amongst the burden or there's lessons to be learned or, you know, so, um, ultimately there is still a weighing of how much burden versus other quality of life, um, factors, uh, and, and then the decisions going forward are based on the difference between the two, um but yeah, I can totally relate to what you're saying because caregivers don't like to turn the spotlight on themselves, but at the same time, they will admit that this is a very, very personal experience for them
2: too, but decisions need to be made based on the person, not not on them. Right. We, we talk, you know, in in my world, we talk about the human animal bond and, you know, is that bond still there? Um, And I think that, As long as that bond is still strong, then owners are willing to pick up their dog's poop and they're willing to clean pee off the carpet and they're willing to, you know, sleep on the couch on the main floor to let the dog out in the middle of the night or so the dog doesn't bark all night long and keep the rest of the family up you know, as long as they feel they're sort of getting, and this is again, another of my questions, like getting, giving love and taking love. Like, are you still getting that love from your pet? Um, and if you feel you're just walking around cleaning up pee and poop all day and your dog is sitting there barking at you all day long um, and you just don't have that bond anymore, it's really hard to keep that relationship going and people sort of feel like they're, they're done. But as long as they feel um, that the bond is still there, then, then people are willing to do a lot um, to, to continue to care for their pets. It's amazing what people will do
1: huh? when they love something or someone. Yeah.
0: Okay. I have a question. Because this comes up a lot that this whole waiting revolution came about because people meet Sammy way too late in the illness. And we've talked a lot about how you're going to people's homes and euthanizing animals. But I suspect you actually, if you met the owners and their pets earlier, Maybe perhaps you could provide uh, palliative care and, and talk about that. And maybe that eventually leads to euthanasia, but there are things that could be done earlier upstream. So, does that resonate with you? This idea of, I wish I had met these families earlier. And also, um, this, and, and it just commenting more about this idea of, do you have, what do you, how do you talk to these owners about the need for palliative care before the step of, of you know, euthanasia?
2: Yeah. So, so, you know, again, I'm sitting here, I'm like nodding, nodding, nodding at what you're saying. Um, so most of the families that find us are finding us through their regular veterinarians. Um, so that's the first thing they've been referred to us and, and, and most of the time, um, you know, it's for in-home euthanasia. Um, but we are also being referred, um, patients that just need sort of more care, um, need more time. Um, and, um, the, the perfect examples of the patients that are finding us. And we sort of say to ourselves, I wish they found us earlier, um, tend to be the big dog, old dog with mobility issues. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, by the time we get there, they're lying on the floor in the middle of the family room and they can't get up anymore. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they've been like that for a couple of days. And so when I say, I wish they found us earlier, it's not not just you know three days ago I wish it was sort of probably a couple of years ago and then a couple months ago so we could get them on better pain um management medications um and talk to them about you know different exercises they could do and just the things that they need to do to keep those dogs moving um, because a, a, a so many older large breed dogs are eventually euthanized because they just they can't get up anymore hmm what about legacy work faith
1: so um, there's a lot of legacy projects and things that people get involved in when they know a loved one is you know doesn't have um a lot of time left but there's still time to do things like um projects and letters and and um Albums and songwriting and I mean I've seen it all uh, taping messages for the people behind. Is there is there a lot of that that happens with. Pets
2: not really I mean you know we make sure that when a a family calls us and they you know again they've been told to to reach out and they want to just touch base and hear sort of what we have to offer and want to make contact for when they need us they know what to expect um and so we we try and tell people you know now's the time make sure you videotape or record your dog's bark or your dog's snoring in the middle of the night and um you know people will want to do some paw prints which is something we do at the time of euthanasia as well but you know if if you want to get that tattoo you get pictures or ink prints of the paws things like that so um i would say that's what we see i was also thinking that uh, if you look on Facebook, for example, you'll see that there are posts out there of people who have put together a bucket list for their pet. Oh. So, you know, they drive around and they go buy a fancy steak for their dog or they take them to the beach and get them running in the water one last time. So these bucket lists for pets are kind of a I wouldn't say they're a big thing, but they, they tend to make their rounds on social media when they do happen. And they're, you know, they're really heartbreaking when you see and and very sweet and very special.
0: We did a whole episode about, you know, how to know when time is running out. So when it's not you and when you, you know, go to people's homes, what are the signs that they should be looking for besides just something being off? Are there obvious things that they, that might signal that they have transitioned to sort of this last phase and it isn't just management or chronic pain anymore?
2: So I love when I go to someone's house and the dog barks, Or greets me at the door like right off the bat if if that dog gets up out of their bed or off the couch or wherever they're sleeping and comes to see me and cares that a stranger has just entered their home check that's a good thing um you know if they bark or they come and sniff me and check me out even if it's for like five seconds and then they go back to where they were to me it shows they're still interested in the world around them they haven't kind of checked out um when I go into a house and they're lying in the corner and it's like a golden retriever, a Labrador, you know, a dog that their job is to check me out. Like that is their job in life. And if they're not coming to see me, if that dog is lying in the corner and barely lifts its head, Mm -hmm. I kind of feel like they've just given up. Like they don't care anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, And you know, the, the quality of life, I, you know, I go back to it a lot because I really think it's such a helpful thing. Not that, Not that the number tells us everything, but the categories in the quality of life scale are such important categories to discuss. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I talk about what the, and it's probably so similar, um, you know, how the owner thinks the dog, you know, are they enjoying life? Are they happy? Would you want this to be your life? Um, mm-hmm. you know, those are some of the things that we discuss. Um, mm-hmm. also knowing that it's not going to get better. You know, what you see now is as good as it's going to get.
1: I do have a, one other, um, category that it comes up so much. And I was just wondering if there's any similarity, um, about food, food. Okay. Yeah. So of, in the human world, of course, food is so important to people in every way. Uh, and it's often a measurement of how well their loved one is doing, how much food they get in or how much weight there's been lost Yeah. or, um, and there's huge anxiety when we suggest that the, their loved one's body is slowing down the way it's programmed and nutrition doesn't contribute the same amount of quality of life. Is there a lot of discussion around food when it comes to pets and illness and wellness and death and dying?
2: It's the same. I mean, people want to feed their pets. And when you see your, your cat lapping up, you know, this canned food, it just makes you feel good because you know that they're really enjoying it. Um, And so when you start offering, you know, five different meals to your cat and they're turning their nose to everything, it really, you know, it it upsets people. Um, and you know, we used to think, okay, just shove the food in their mouth or, you know, suck it up into a syringe and squirt it in their mouth. They don't want it. And so we really have to help people understand that if they don't want it and we can try, you know, sometimes we try appetite stimulants and I'm not saying the second your pet stops eating, don't ever feed them again. Yeah. Um, you know, we will try appetite stimulants and we will suggest they warm it up or put it on their pond. You know, we have all these things that we can do to try, to help entice them,
1: mm-hmm.
2: but when they're sort of, when they're getting towards the end of life and they don't want to eat,
1: mm-hmm. then,
2: then we tell people not to force it.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, the flip side of that is when I have a client who tells me that their pet is fine because they're, they're eating still. And you know, I say eating, drinking, pooping does not equal a good quality of life. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I will see pets that are skin and bones that mm-hmm. still eats. Perhaps they're hyperthyroid, and so that just makes them like eat, eat, eat. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're they're suffering, and mm-hmm. and they're fading. Um, but people are in you know a tremendous amount of denial because they think, well, she's still eating, mm-hmm. but eating mm-hmm. isn't everything
1: there's still so many parallels and it's, it's affirming actually to hear what it's like being uh, a vet who provides palliative care and euthanasia in people's homes, uh, how similar it is to the work
2: uh, that, that I do. It's crazy. Uh, You know, our, our service, I, I, I know provides such a wonderful service to families who want to be able to say goodbye in the comfort and privacy of their home. And I would hear from people all the time saying, you know, as you said, I, I wish we could have done this for my aunt, or they will say, will you come back in 20 years for me? Um, you know, people, people see the gentleness of it and the, um, the the peacefulness of it and the beauty, like the, the way that I think about euthanasia is, is not just, you know, push a syringe and the pet dies. Like we strive to make it a really beautiful experience. And so, um, you know, when people see that for their pets, they, they want to believe that they can have that for themselves if that's what they choose.
1: Because of course you can choreograph it, right? uh, Because it's all planned and expected. right. So You can make it a beautiful thing. Have you ever been asked by family members to euthanize
2: them? Um, not at the moment. They again, they they want us to come back. They're not ready. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, in, in the future. I mean, I I you know I'm 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 pleased that this is available for people. I do believe that um, when used correctly, that it is it is a, a gentle and kind offering. That's the big
1: difference between your world and my world as well. Is that um, humans are so divided on this subject right. um, about uh, medical assistance in dying. So in in your world, uh, in the veterinary world, it's it's usual practice to use uh-huh. and it's yes. accepted, and it it probably doesn't come laden with as much. Um, Conflicting opinions. Mm -hmm. Uh, um, It's a very, very heartfelt topic amongst
2: uh, not only citizens, but clinicians. And so here's a a pet situation. Somebody calls the veterinarian and says, I want to euthanize my six-year-old cat. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's a pretty young cat, you know, young, healthy, maybe. Why do you want to euthanize your cat? Well, he's peeing on the floor. Mm. So many veterinarians would say, "I'm not euthanizing a cat for peeing on the floor." Mm-hmm. And so, how much information does that person need to give you before they change their mind? Your mind. So, you know, in that 15-minute conversation, maybe you find out that you know the cat's peeing on the floor, and they've tried different medications, they've tried different foods. Da 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 da. Mm-hmm. When you really dig in deep with them you might also find out that they have a child that has cancer Mm -hmm. and so you know i i sometimes think should it be up to the owner and yes i want to provide guidance and understanding and you know give them options and let them Mm -hmm. really have a, a grasp on the whole situation but you know how much convincing do they need to do and 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 is it fair that we make them try and convince us? And so when you talk about this, I kind of think of it the same way. If someone says, you know, not that you would take it lightly, but if somebody says, you know, I, okay, I've just been diagnosed with a type of cancer and I, and I don't want to go through anything. I don't want treatment. I don't want people to see me wearing a diaper. I don't want this. Like how much, why, why should they have to convince you?
1: I would say that, um. The reason why it behooves us to do a thorough uh, assessment is because of this death-denying society, this the fears and misconceptions that people have about what the future is going to hold um, when they're diagnosed with a progressive illness. You can't believe how much course correcting we do. And when that's done, pe- when people learn what normal dying looks like what does and does not happen what supports are available to them what alternate places of care are available to them um, what sometimes the silver linings are about going through natural dying and I'm not a proponent for either one but I'm just saying I cannot tell you how many times people have said my god I knew none of that Right. I had no idea in fact I actually don't think I'm ready for assisted dying um I I didn't know that and so I'm really happy that it's an option and I want to keep it in my back pocket yeah yeah but no one ever told me that whatever it was and you know I think I think I want to wait a little bit longer and that's the reason Faith because so many people who request it um decide that they want to put it on the back burner when they have more information or more support. But yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. Why should people have to convince like, doesn't that you could argue that causes more suffering for someone to have to pitch their, their Their story. On the other hand, uh, the human who's doing the assessment has to live beyond the decision they make. And because people sometimes course correct it's a life and death. You can't change your mind once it's gotcha. done. Yeah. I think that's why we tread very carefully.
2: Yeah. I mean, listen, we. I say the same thing to people that, you know, I, I need to sleep at night. And if I'm the one pushing the, that syringe... I need to sleep at night and I need to know that, um, you know, I am doing what is best for the pet and for the owner. And so, um, you know, we, we still require those conversations and, and having those deep discussions, um, because not again, that I need to be convinced per se, but again, I, I want to feel that what I am doing yeah. is a positive. And when I am taking a pet's life, I want to know that, um, that there's good reason behind it.
1: Well, there's no one else I would call. (laughs) That is for sure. I knew that before this call, but I
2: now know it even more.
0: Yeah, Faith, it's been a great conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today.
2: You're very welcome. Thank you for having me.
0: Thanks for listening. Please visit our website, waitingroomrevolution.com to listen to our first season about the seven keys and to learn more podcast is produced and edited by me and Kayla McMillan. Our theme music is Maple by Ketza. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast and help us get the word out.